Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would now give us hearts that are eager to obey your word. And Lord, we ask for discernment. We ask that you would help us to have faculties that are trained to discern between good and evil, that we might obey this text. And Lord, I pray that you'd make us sensitive to the prompting of your Holy Spirit so that if we encounter something that makes it clear that we need to repent, Lord, I pray that you'd give us grace to do it. And Father, I pray that you would help us to guard the gospel, to love one another, and to live for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Today is Sunday, December the 8th, 2019. We started through Romans, in some ways, on August 5th. Hey, Joel and Katie. Great to see you guys. In August, on August 5th of uh, 2018, uh, we started we, with a, a sermon on Paul's life and message, and then we started into Romans, really, on August the 12th of 2018. And uh, this is like, I think this is the 47th sermon in Romans, and after today, we will be to, we'll, we'll have finished the book. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book. I think it is safe to say that Romans is the greatest letter ever written. Uh, perhaps it's the most important of the epistles in the New Testament. And, and that, I think, prompts the, the valid question, what is Paul going to say to these people at the end? You know, he, he gets through this, this Himalayan exercise of, of making his way through these majestic doctrines, having addressed uh, the sin of humanity and God's provision of a Savior in Christ, and then the, the transformed life that people should live in response to uh, being justified by grace through faith. And then he addresses the, the question of, of Israel in God's purposes and plan, and then he gives these these soaring instructions to Christians about how they relate to one another, how they live and with one another and love one another. What's he going to say at the very end of it all? Well, I would suggest that in these last verses, Romans 16, verses 17 through 20, Paul has basically three points, three, three final uh, things that he wants to say to the church. The first one in verses 17 through 20 is, is simply guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. So he's, he's exposited the gospel. He's explained how to live in response to the gospel. And now he wants the church to guard the gospel. We'll look at that in detail. And then in verses 21 through 23, he returns to some greetings. So at the first part of the chapter that we looked at last week, he himself greets all these people. And now in these, these last three, or this next three verses, verses 21 through 23, he provides some greetings from people who are with him, and, and I think essentially what he's saying there is, we love you. Guard the gospel, verses 17 through 20. We love you, verses 21 through 23. And then finally, in verses 25 through 27, it's this majestic doxology where essentially what Paul says is, glory to God forever. So let's, let's look at these three 
final things that Paul has to say to the church, beginning in verse 17. And, and actually, as, as we start looking at Romans 16, verse 17, uh, notice how when he says, I appeal to you, brothers, notice how similar this is to Romans 12, 1. The ESV renders Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And really, that's the only difference is the therefore. But it's the exact same phrase in Romans 16, verse 17 that we had in Romans 12, 1. So here he is appealing to them again. And and whereas there he was saying, you need to respond to the gospel, respond to God's mercy by offering your body as a living sacrifice. Look at what he says here in Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Okay, so there's two things there. Watch out for these people and avoid them. When he speaks of, of, of these people causing divisions and creating obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, this is similar to what he said back in Romans 6 when he said in verse 17, he spoke of the way that they became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which they were committed. So he's speaking here of the gospel. The gospel that the church in Rome has already received, the, the people, the Christian, these are already Christians that he's writing to in Rome. So someone has gone there with the gospel, preached to them the good news of the Lord Jesus. They heard it. They turned away from sin to worship the living God. The miracle happened in their hearts. And, and Paul in Romans 6, 17 speaks of them being handed over to that standard of teaching. And now he's saying, look, you've been, you've been given this doctrine. You've been taught this doctrine, both by those people who first proclaimed the gospel to them and by Paul now in the form of this letter. And he's saying, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the gospel. When he speaks of, of those who create obstacles... Um, he uses a word that also appears in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, when he's describing the works of the flesh. And he says there in, in Galatians 5, in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. And then he goes through this list, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, that's our word, Divisions, that's a synonym. So watch out for those who cause divisions, dissentious people, people that will never agree with the teaching, people who always quibble with something that has been said. These are people who, who at the end of the day, they just don't like the message about Jesus. Paul is talking to people who have received the gospel. He's explained the gospel to them in Romans, and he's saying, you be on the lookout for people with whom it is evident that they don't like the gospel. And then he goes on. They cause divisions and create obstacles. And here he uses this word um, uh, that, that we get our word scandal from. Scandala is, is, the, is the, uh, the form of the Greek word here. These people create obstacles. This word is also... It's used a number of places. One place, if you just turn one page over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul speaks there about how we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block. That's our, 
that's our term, to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. So this stumbling block, these people create obstacles, and, and this word stumbling block, it, it's also been used in Romans, back in Romans 14, verse 13. Paul speaks there, he says, let us not, not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So what's he talking about? He's talking about people who, who do things and say things that make it hard for other people to believe in Jesus. Whether they're already believing and these people are doing things that make them think, maybe it's not so good to believe in Jesus. Or whether they're thinking about believing and these people say and do things that make it where people think, what that person just did makes it harder for me to want to believe in Jesus. Paul is saying, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Now, what's Paul's motivation here? His motivation is the Great Commission, isn't it? He wants people to believe the gospel. He wants people to be made disciples of the Lord Jesus. And he's saying to the people that have already believed the gospel, the congregations in Rome, he's saying to them, in order for the gospel to advance, you guys need to have your eyes open. You need to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Now notice how the command is given to the, the brothers. It's not a command given simply to individuals. And it's, so I think this is a command addressed to the church as a whole, as a congregation. In other words... This is not a command that we follow as individuals in our own personal lives. Otherwise, we'd never have the opportunity to share the gospel with an unbeliever or to see someone become a disciple of Jesus, right? We have to interact with unbelievers. So Paul is not saying to believers, don't have anything to do with those people that don't agree with the gospel. But he is saying to the church, as a congregation, you guys need to be distinct from the world. You need to watch out for those who cause divisions, and create obstacles contrary to, and I'm just going to abbreviate here, the gospel, the doctrine that you have been taught. And as a church, avoid them. As a church, you need to be distinguished from those people. This is the kind of thing that Paul has said in other places, uh, avoid them. He, he says over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, um, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. So this is a church discipline kind of thing. Somebody that won't work, you need to withdraw from that person. And then down in verse 14 of 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. So I, I think Paul is saying something like this to the church in Rome. He's saying to the church in Rome, you guys need to have your eyes open. And if you find an infiltrator, somebody that doesn't like the gospel, every time they hear the message of Jesus, they want to object to the idea that we're sinners who needed a savior. Every time they hear the message about the holiness of God, they want to object to the idea that God in his righteousness would visit judgment upon guilty sinners. Every time they hear the message that you have to turn away from your sin and, and trust wholly in Jesus, they want to say, well, no, actually, maybe there's a way for you to have your sin and be a follower of Jesus. You need to watch out for those people. And then 
their actions, they're going to they're be divisive. That, that behavior is contrary to the doctrine that they've been taught, and Paul says, avoid them. And then he goes on in verse 18 here to explain, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. So if, if you've got somebody who's serving the Lord Jesus, and you go to them and you say to them, you know, every time this topic comes up, you seem to be dissentious about it. And I'm not sure I understand what's going on with that. If this is someone who's committed to serving Jesus, and you can show it to them in Scripture, I suspect that, that we can expect that they will come around and they will say, you know what, you're right. I see that in the Bible, and, and I understand your concern, and I'm going to try to get better. Will you help me? Will you pray for me? Will you, will you walk with me through this? That's the way believers, that's the way people that are serving our Lord Christ respond in these kinds of situations. But if you've got somebody and you come to them and you say, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about what, what just went down and, and I think that the way that you're conducting yourself is actually making it harder for people to believe in Jesus. I think you're making it harder for us to carry out the Great Commission. And they say, tough, tough. Not stopping, not moderating, not changing anything, not taking your concerns into account, not doing anything different. Well, Paul says, avoid that person. Because they're not serving Christ, they're serving their own. If you look, there's a footnote here on the word appetites. And down in the lower margin, it says belly. They're serving their own belly. They're, they're, they're satisfying themselves. They're acting on their own fleshly desire. And whatever it is they want, whether it's power that they want or glory for themselves that they want, I mean, some people, they just want to be right. They want to be right, and they want to put it in the eye of anybody that disagrees. They're not serving the Lord Christ, but their own belly. And, Paul continues here in this verse, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So these are probably not going to be people always, sometimes. Sometimes such people are obnoxious. But sometimes such people are really attractive. And, and as, as Schreiner writes in his commentary, they come across as urbane and witty and sophisticated. Maybe, I think this is very common in, in our sort of evangelical bubble, maybe what it is is that they're just really cynical about everything. Everything's a joke. Everything is something for them to mock. I mean, sincere, good-hearted people trying to love Jesus, trying to walk with God, and all they want to do in response is mock those people because they're cool and those people aren't. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And you don't, you don't wind up with people who are passionate about Jesus people who love the Bible, people who are eager to talk about the mercy of God, you wind up with people who are trying to be cool. They're trying to crack another joke. They're trying to be as urbane and witty and sophisticated as those cynical guys that they heard on the podcast. And Paul just says, watch out for those people. Avoid them. I don't have any particular podcast in mind. But I think they're plentiful. They're not hard to find. You've probably listened to them this week like I did. Not helpful, in my opinion. 
Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they, des they deceive the hearts of the naive. What is, what is Paul's concern here? His concern, if we, if we just sort of look at the, the reverse of what he's talking about, cause divisions, create obstacles, his concern is going to be unity, isn't it? He, he wants the church to be unified, and then he wants this smooth path to the gospel, right? So no divisions and no obstacles. It's really another way of saying they'll know you're Christians by your love for one another. When you, when you love one another, you're united with one another, and, and they'll, know you're they'll know you're followers of Jesus. And, and it's like there's nothing between me and Jesus that those people have put there as obstacles. That's what Paul wants. He wants these churches in Rome to be about the Great Commission. I want to address three things in our culture that, that I think just from the, the sort of atmosphere that we live in, three things that could, in, a, in subtle ways, seep into our thinking and start shaping our identity and start resulting in divisions among us that create obstacles. And you know, you may listen to these three things and you may think, I got no problem with any of those three. Well, that's great. Praise the Lord. But we may have a problem with some of these things as a result of which we have divisions that could crop up among us. These are, these are identity-shaping things. So the first one may seem silly to some of you, but I think it's serious. College football. I think it's possible. I'm not indicting anybody. I think it's possible for people to get so invested in their team that they begin to resent people that are not connected to their team or, or maybe connected to a rival team. And that resentment, it, 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 you know, college football is great fun until it stops being fun. And, and it's, it's great entertainment until it stops just being entertainment and it starts to become something that makes it where you don't like that person. You don't like that person, that person annoys you, you're tired of that person, and if we get there, we've got divisions among us, don't we? And, and what's happened to us is we're identifying with something other than the Lord Jesus, and we're, we're identifying with that something to the point that we now don't like people that are not identified with what we're identified with. And, and I think we need to repent if we're there. If we're there. If you get there, I just plead with you, repent. Repent. And then I think we need to purge our identity of these things. We need to be like Paul speaks in, in, in 1 Corinthians 7 when he speaks of those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. And, and, and we need to enjoy college football as though we didn't enjoy it. it. That's the way it needs to just entertain us for a little bit and then we move on and our identity is so firmly and completely in Christ that there's no division among us. We may have no problem with that. If so, great, praise the Lord. Second thing, political ideology. Now, this may, may or may not be a problem on, among us, but I think it's a problem uh, in Christianity in general, so I think it's probably going to crop up among us. Political ideology, and in particular, politicians that you either support or don't support. We can't allow these things to cause divisions 
and create obstacles. And again, I think wherever you land on the political spectrum, whatever you think about the president, whatever you think about the political parties, it can't be something that causes divisions between you and fellow believers. And it, and it can't become something that makes it so that unbelievers... Now, I mean, you know, there are certain convictional things that the Bible teaches that, that are going to result in us bearing the reproach of Christ in our culture, and unbelievers may reject us for that reason. But we don't want... We don't want um, things that, that the Bible does not directly address to be creating obstacles between us and the gospel and creating divisions among us. And thirdly, and this is, you know, this is a, this is a sensitive topic. All three of these, I think, could be sensitive topics if they apply. Um, your, your cultural and racial heritage and background, it can't create, it can't, create obstacles and cause divisions among us. We, we want to identify as people who descend from a common ancestor, Adam, and we're all sinners. We're all the same kind of sinners, the kind of sinners that needed nothing less than the eternal second person of the Godhead to save us. That should humble all of us in our pride. None of us has any reason for pride in our cultural heritage or background. I mean, I, there's an appropriate kind of pride, like I'm proud of my kids, and, and great. But None of us should boast over others. We're all the same kind of sinners. And we all get saved the same kind of way. We all have to turn away from sin and trust in Christ. And he's the only way any of us get saved. And that needs to create such a unity among us that, that there's a glorious splendor, an aroma, aroma of Christ among us. An aroma of life to life for some. It's going to be death to death for others. But it's an aroma of life. Because of the gospel. This is what the gospel needs to produce among us. We may have no problem with any of that. But we want to watch out. We want to watch out for those who would advocate for their college football team in such a way that it's going to breed hatred. We want to watch out for those who advocate for their political ends in such a way that it's going to, it's going to breed resentment among us. We want to watch out for those who talk about cultural heritage, racial identity in such a way that it's going to result in us not identifying with brothers and sisters in Christ as we should. This is our family. Believers in Jesus, this is our family. So watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them as a, as a congregation. Individually, I think Paul would say, engage them with the gospel. If they reject the gospel, go engage somebody else with the gospel. Build a relationship, great, but, but be careful. Don't let them infiltrate your thinking. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. Verse 19, Paul is so encouraging. I think, I, why is Paul talking about this? Well, he's heard about what's going on, going on in Rome, hasn't he? He's heard about these Jew-Gentile divides that resulted in like three chapters of necessary instruction to try to heal these tensions, right? And now look at what he says here in verse 19. For your obedience is known to all. Everybody's heard about you guys. That's what he's saying to these churches in Rome. Isn't that encouraging? Can you imagine the apostle? Get it? Can you imagine being an ordinary Christian in Rome? Maybe you're a slave. Maybe you're you're somebody that knows that your Greco-Roman background, it was so deeply pagan that you were the worst kind of sinner, and now you've heard the gospel, 
and you're like this Roman landholder or whatever nobility, and you're in this little church, and the Apostle Paul writes this letter and says, your obedience is known to all, all, all the churches everywhere. They've heard about you guys and the way that you believe the gospel and the way that you're walking in accordance with the truth. Wouldn't that be encouraging? Paul is such, as an, such an encourager calling the Corinthians saints. <laughs> I mean, you got to have an optimistic attitude to say that, right? Your obedience is known to all. There's a lot of other stuff that's known to all, evidently, because it got to Paul's ears, right? But that's not what he focuses on here at the end. Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. He's not saying, I'm so frustrated with you sorry Christians in Rome. I'm having all these divisions about what you eat and what day you rest on. No, I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. There's a very interesting uh, word connection between the word naive at the end of verse 18 and evil at the end of verse 19. And this little connection, you, you just can't reproduce it in English. Um, but, but it indicates, that, well, the, the word that's rendered evil is negated for the word naive. And it's reminiscent, to me at least, of a wordplay that happens at the end of, of Genesis 2. When it says at the end of Genesis 2 that they were both um, naked and were not ashamed, the word there for naked is used to describe the shrewdness and the craftiness of the serpent. And it, it sets up this connection between the evil of the serpent and the innocence and naivety of Adam and Eve. And I think Paul has something like that in mind, and that's why he's going to say in verse, what he's going to say in verse 20. So it's almost as though he's saying, I want you to be like Adam and Eve in the garden with respect to evil. I want you to be innocent of it. I want you to, be, I want you to, to stay in your naive, undiluted, unsullied, unmixed, pure devotion to Christ. To do that, you got to be watchful, verse 17. you got to avoid those who would cause divisions and create obstacles. And then he says, you're doing great, verse 19. I want you to be innocent as to what is evil. And then there's this assurance here in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So that, there, I think, is the connection to that garden story, Genesis 3.15. Um, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he will bruise your head. And Paul is taking that text, and he's saying to the church that the God of peace is going to crush Satan under your feet. Did God crush Satan under the feet of Christ when Christ died on the cross? Absolutely. Uh, but it's also the case that the Old Testament poetically interprets the crossing of the Red Sea as a crushing of the serpent's head. That happens in Psalm 79, Psalm 89, Psalm 74. It's Isaiah 51, a number of places. And, and what Paul is saying here is, as you, as you communicate the gospel, and as you obey these instructions that I'm giving you about watching out for those who are going to cause divisions and create obstacles, and avoiding those people, as you maintain the purity of the gospel, as you advance the Great Commission... In the same way that it was like there were these build-ups to the cross, there are going to be these build-ups to the second coming. So the church is going to succeed as the God of peace crushes Satan under their feet until Christ comes and brings that about fully. Now notice the 
the difference between the first, second, and third statements of verse 20. The God of peace, what do you think of when you think of peace? You know, shalom is probably in the background of Paul's mind. Um, no, no violence, no conflict. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. That's violent. And then the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And Paul has no problem putting those three statements side by side. Because the peace that God establishes is a peace that results from his strength. It results from his violence against those who are his avowed enemies. Those who refuse to repent. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That, it's that grace that brings about the defeat of Satan. It's that grace that delivers people from Satan. That enables them to appreciate and worship the God of peace. So, so both the church's health in avoiding these divisive obstacle makers and the eschatological victory, the end time victory of the Lord Jesus are going to bring about the crushing of Satan. And then there's this last set of, of greetings. Paul writes in verse 21. And again, I think... It's just so evident that Paul and his co-workers, they love these people in Rome. They've, they've been, they, it, it seems, from what we have here, that we've, we, we've got like a window into the camaraderie that Paul and his fellow workers enjoyed as they strategized, as they prayed for this church in Rome, as they named these people's names, as they prayed for them specifically, as they thought about how they were going to go visit the people in Rome and what they needed to do there, and then how they were going to continue on to Spain. So Paul says here in verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker. He's called other people fellow worker in the passage back in verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers. Verse uh, 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker. Now, Timothy, Timothy, whom he would address as his son, over in, in the letters to Timothy. Timothy's with him, evidently, in Corinth. They would later be parted from one another. Tim, Timothy would be in Ephesus when Paul wrote to him from Rome. But here, they're together. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. These are Jewish guys, which means that Lucius is not Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, because that Luke is a Gentile, according to Colossians 4. And then in verse 22, the guy, the, the scribe who has been writing the letter for Paul, he's physically writing it, whether as Paul dictates it or maybe Paul, you know, told him what he wanted to say and then um, Tertius maybe writes up a draft and brings it to Paul and Paul revises and changes. And I don't, I don't know how the process worked, but at any rate, this guy Tertius says in verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. It's clearly a letter from Paul, physically written by Tertius. And there are a number of places in Paul's letter, letters where he'll say things like, I, Paul, uh, greet you uh, um, with, with this writing in my own hand or something like that, he'll say, uh, see with what large letters I write with my own hand, you know. So it's evident that in a number of his letters, somebody else did the actual physical writing, and, and Paul was nevertheless providing the content. And that's what we have here. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. 
And, and even this, this is remarkable because this guy, Tertius, he could have been a slave. Some scholars think he definitely was. And here's Paul, the apostle. I mean, this is the only case, I think, maybe, there, maybe there's another that I'm not thinking of, but it's the only case in Paul's letters where the guy that, the scribe, got to write his name and got to greet the church. And so here's this slave, and Paul is conferring dignity upon him, saying, Tertius, why don't you go ahead and greet them? And when he says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord, that indicates that he's a believer. Verse 23, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. If you just turn one page over, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 1, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, probably the same guy. So Paul is, and, and it's this guy Gaius is a host to Paul and to the whole church, so Evidently, there's a church meeting in Gaius' house, and Gaius is now sending his greeting. Erastus, the city treasurer. There's dis dispute, dis debate about what exact role he held, but the point is, he's a high official, and this high official in Corinth is greeting the church. He's concerned about the church in another city, which is not all that typical of politicians and city officials, but this guy's heart has been transformed. He's concerned about the church. And our brother Quartus greet you. And that brings us to the doxology at the end of the letter. So verses 17 through 20, guard the gospel. Verses 21 to 23, we love you. And now verses 20, 25 through 27, glory to God. I think there's a chiasm here. Uh, look at how it opens. Now to him, and then verse 27, to the only wise God. So I think those are the framing statements, these statements um, to God. Um, and look at what's said about God, verse 25. To him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the teaching of Jesus Christ. To him who is able to strengthen you. Paul's confidence that this church in Rome is going to be strong to the end is not based upon the quality of what he has written in the letter, although that is clearly there. I mean, in other words, the letter is clearly quality, right? Paul's confidence is not based upon their intellectual acumen. Paul's confidence is based on God who is able to strengthen them. And you remember how the letter opens in Romans 1, 16 and 17, where Paul speaks of how the gospel is the power of God for salvation. There's a kind of match here, beginning and end of the whole letter. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now, here in verse 25, to him who is able to strengthen you. And then look at verse 27. To the only wise God. The God of the Bible is the only God, and he's the only wise God. God. And all you have to do to see this is just look at the myths. Look at how those gods fight with each other. Look at how those gods, they, they do all the things that humans, all the stupid, foolish, sinful, greedy, lustful. You'll find all the folly of humanity in mythology about the gods. But not the God of the Bible. He's the only wise God. He's able to strengthen He's the only wise God. And then look at these according to statements. The first in verse 25, according to my gospel. I think the emphasis of, of Paul speaking of his gospel is, is in particular on 
the gospel to the Gentiles. You know, he, he describes himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. He spoke of how he goes to the Jew first and also the Greek. I think that's the particular emphasis, the inclusion of the Gentiles. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. These are really the same thing. The gospel that Paul preaches, the Christ that Paul, the message about the Lord Jesus. And then look, at, look down in verse 26, about the middle of the verse where it says, according to the command of the eternal God. So I think the according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ statement in verse 25 actually matches the according to the command of the eternal God statement to bring about the obedience of faith. And what's that? Well, that's the Great Commission. The Great Commission is about the message of the gospel. It's, it's the proclamation of the good news that the holy God has brought about reconciliation between himself and those who were rebellious against him. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, the Bible says you're a rebel. And that's our message to you too. You're a rebel. You're, you are in rebellion against the living God. And that's not going to end well for you. He's a little bit more powerful than you are. And he's always going to outlast you. You are never going to escape him. But the good news is that that God has, has made a way for you to be reconciled to him by sending his son Jesus so that if you'll turn away from your rebellion against this God and take this Jesus for your king and swear allegiance to him and put your faith and hope in him, you can be saved from that God's wrath. That's the message. And that's what we want for you if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus. And we're, we're communicating that to you because God commanded us to do it when Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. We want you to believe, and because you believe, we want you to obey God. Okay, so there are these matching according to statements, and then there's this middle statement. It starts in the middle of verse 25 and continues through the first part of verse 26. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. Okay, so um, essentially what Paul says here is it was hidden and now it's been revealed. And what he's communicating is that there was this mystery of what God would accomplish that was testified to in the Old Testament. You see that line in verse 26? It's, been dis it's now been disclosed through the prophetic writings. So the Old Testament indicated that Jesus would come. The Old Testament indicated that God would bring the Gentiles in, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham and through his seed. The Old Testament indicated that God would bring about this great salvation, but it was still hidden. It was a mystery how it would be brought about. But now the mystery, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, all that time from creation to the coming of Christ, now the mystery has been disclosed so now it's been revealed how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And if you remember, this is actually how Paul started the letter also. You remember back in Romans 1, he, when he speaks of uh, how God, in verse 2, Romans 1, 2, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, he promised this gospel concerning his son who was descended from David. So Paul is saying all that, all that in the Old Testament, it was there but there's a sense in which it was hidden and it was a mystery. And so, you know, if you go to the Old Testament and you're like, I'm not sure I see all this. Well, there's, it's kind of, yeah, you got to look at it the right way. 
And, and you, you, you have to have the mystery disclosed and revealed through what comes to you in the New Testament. And it's now been made known, it's now been disclosed, verse 26, through the prophetic writings. This is definitely the Old Testament. Paul may, I mean, this is A.D. 57. I don't know if any Gospels have been written by this time. He may be talking about prophetic writings that now exist in the New Testament also that would, that would reveal and make known to all nations and disclose how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. There are a couple other passages where Paul speaks of New Testament material as though it's Scripture. 1 Timothy 5.18, he quotes what looks like the Gospel of Luke, and he refers to that as Scripture. And then, uh, actually, the other one is Peter, 2 Peter 3.15 and 16. Peter speaks of Paul's writings as though they are Scripture. So I think it's possible that Paul, when he speaks of these prophetic writings, he may have in mind some things that that are now in the New Testament. At any rate, the point here is, What was kept hidden for long ages has now been revealed in Christ. So God has brought out the consummation, the fulfillment of his plan. And then look at how verse 27 ends. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, if that's what we live for, we'll have no problem eliminating sources of division and removing obstacles. If we live for the glory of God, we won't be living for something that we think is glorious that other people don't think is glorious. If we live for the glory of God, no, I mean, if if you're not ultimately living for the glory of your college football team, you know, people are going to be okay with you. If you're not ultimately living for the glory of some temporary political ideology, people are going to be okay with you. If you're not living for the glory of some particular cultural background or some particular racial heritage, which is not going to last forever anyway, people are going to be okay with you. we got to live for the glory of God if we want to be unified. If we want to be unified, we have to be unified in our ultimate objective. And what God gives us in the Scriptures makes that possible for us. One final appeal here. If, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, wouldn't you like to get in on this? Wouldn't you like to live for something that you'll never regret? Wouldn't you like to live for something about which you can say to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ? Amen. Wouldn't wouldn't you like your whole soul to be able to say with no regrets, he deserves all glory forever? And if you're a believer, you can say that with no regret, with no hesitation, with no qualification. It needs no footnotes. It needs no academic throat clearing. You don't have to qualify it in the least. He deserves all glory forever. It's a fitting conclusion to the book of Romans. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for help to to guard the gospel. We pray for help to watch out for those who would lead us away from it, to watch out for those who would cause divisions and create obstacles. We pray for strength to avoid them. Lord, we pray for appetites and affections that would make it easy to watch out and avoid. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to love you with a love that surpasses any created thing. Cause us to love your glory 
and to be fixated on it so that we're not concerned with how people perceive us. We don't care whether or not we fit in with them. We live for you. Lord, we pray that you would lay such claim to us and make us feel it. That we could be people about whom somebody could say, your obedience is known to all. And Lord, we long for the day when you, the God of peace, according to the grace of the Lord Jesus, will crush Satan under the feet of Christ and under our feet as well. Lord, we, we pray come soon, Lord Jesus. And as we wait, we pray that you'd help us to love one another and to love other people doing gospel work. Lord, keep us from mindsets of competition or comparison. Help us to to be eager to greet those in joyful love who are doing what we're trying to do. And Father, help us to experience a deepening appreciation of how privileged we are to have this revelation, to have the Bible. Lord, you've been so good and merciful to us to reveal yourself to us, to make it all known in the Scriptures. Cause us to feel how precious this is and cause our hearts to respond, trusting that you're able to strengthen us and with everything in us resonating that you deserve glory through Christ by the power of the Spirit forever. Amen.